Our text this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, Gospel of Luke chapter 15. I will ask you to turn your Bibles there if you have a Bible in front of you that you can use, or also you can read up the screen. But if you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn there because one of the things we do is not only read the passage, but go a little bit before and a little bit after as we start a sermon this morning to see the context of what we're reading now. Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, starting on verse 11. We'll be reading all the way to the end of the chapter. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey to a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to to his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will rise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants." And he rose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobey your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I may celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. Your word is true, truly a lamp to our feet and light to our paths. We need you, 
and we pray that your Holy Spirit be uh, upon us this morning, working these truths that we just read about in our hearts. Open our eyes to see, open our hearts to understand, for we pray in Christ's name, amen. We serve a God who loves to save sinners. That is the very joy of God, the delight of God, the delight of heaven is salvation of those who are lost. In Ezekiel chapter 33, in the Old Testament, God had already said, As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. In the Gospel of Luke, we often see this recurring theme of salvation. Uh, Christ himself declares in Luke 19, verse 10, that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That was the very purpose of the coming of the Messiah unto earth. But as obvious as it may be for us today to think of God as our Savior, it wasn't this obvious for many in the first century when Christ came, especially those of the religious sect, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. And throughout the book of Luke, we see how they would often complain and and not being able to understand how Jesus would sit and eat and relate to sinners that way. How would a holy God come for those who are sinners? So if you go back to chapter 5 of Luke, chapter 5, verse 30, we read, And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, "Why Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. And this is the first time that Jesus deals with this. And I want you to understand that the point Jesus is making here is not that he has a preference for a certain group. He doesn't have a a particular preference for the so-called sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the thieves who are coming after him. He preach the same gospel and, and show the same, the same desire to, to come and to rescue those who were of the religious group as, as much as those who were outside that group. We see uh, later on in chapter 19 of Luke that he, he goes and he eats with Zacchaeus, the, the tax collectors, and of course the Pharisees are complaining about that. But if you go back to Luke chapter 11, and I'll read verse 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 37, It says that while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. See, Jesus is ministering to all people, and he's offering the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God, to Pharisees and to the sinners, those who are in the street, and and everyone who would come in here. The very last phrase you find in chapter 16 of Luke, which is the introduction to what we're seeing here in chapter 15. Jesus is teaching the, the crowds, and he says, he who, ha- he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's end of verse 35 of chapter 14. He who has, has ears, let him hear. Jesus is offering the gospel, and he is saying, whoever wants to come and receive the good news and, and receive the kingdom of God, it's being offered to you right now. And the first thing we see after that, and this is the context that leads us to the parable we read this morning, is that in the very beginning of chapter 15, 
It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing, drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. See, Jesus is offering the gospel to all people, but the sinners are the ones who are coming. Not the Pharisees. They're coming, they're grumbling, and they're trying to get Jesus to say something wrong here or there that they can use against him. But the sinners are the ones who are coming, and they're attracted to this idea of the gospel. They, they want this idea of forgiveness and, and the opportunity for repentance. There's hope for them now, and, and they're interested. They're the ones coming. And Jesus now, as he understands what's going on in the hearts of the Pharisees, he starts teaching these parables to make a point to these Pharisees who are against Jesus' uh, relationship with these sinners. And so he tells them three parables. The first one is the parable of the lost sheep. A man has a hundred sheep, and he loses one of those sheep. What do you do? You leave the 99, you go after that one, and you rescue the sheep. And when you find the sheep, what is the conclusion? It's, there's great joy. He throws a party. And the Pharisees, of course, could understand this. They could relate to the idea of losing a sheep. A sheep was something important to them. And, of course, if you lost a sheep, you go after it. And, and Jesus, of course, is making this, these parables to teach a, a point, to make a point here. And we see that in verse 7 when Jesus says, Just so, as an application of this first parable, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So Jesus is making his point here. This is not really about sheep. This is about God coming to the world and saving sinners. But he moves on to a second parable. And I want you to look at the numbers. The numbers are important here. You had 100 sheep and you lose one sheep. Now you have 10 coins and this woman loses one out of those 10 coins. She finds the coin, and she's sweeping around. She's, she's, she's interested. She needs to find it. She finds it. She throws a party when she finds it. And Jesus says in verse 10, he applies that same principle again. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. That's the joy of heaven. It's, it's a party going on in heaven all the time because the joy of God is when the word is being spread and sinners are coming to Christ. And the Pharisees, of course, could relate to that. Coin is even more precious than sheep, and now it's not 1%, it's 10% of that money. So Jesus is building a point, and now he gets to the climax of these three parables. Now, we're not talking about sheep. We're not talking about a woman who, who lost a coin. Now we're talking about a father who only has two sons, and he loses one of these sons. If this son were to come back and you were to receive that son again, one out of two, what would be the father's reaction? What would you expect of that father? And, of course, Jesus' point is very clear, but that's not, as we'll see, how uh, some took that last parable to be understood. So let's start with verse 11, with the younger son. We have three main characters in this parable. Uh, the younger son, who goes and, and sins recklessly, then we have the father, who is, of course, the main character in the story. Uh, the, the, the main character here, in the, first, in the same way that the, the first story talks about this shepherd who finds the sheep. It's not about the sheep, necessarily. Then the second uh, parable is about the woman who finds her coin. 
and it's her joy that's being described there. And now the father is the one finding his son, and the story is all about the father, the joy of this father. And then thirdly, we have, of course, the third and oldest son representing the Pharisees who are the audience of Jesus here and who Jesus is trying to speak to. So verse 11, and he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. One thing we need to have in mind as we're reading not only this parable, but many of Jesus' parables, is that the culture where Jesus is living here in, in, in first century, century uh, Palestine, this, this is a different culture than the one we live today in America. We are more self-oriented, uh, individualistic in our society, where even today, if you go to more Middle Eastern or uh, Asian countries, Eastern countries, those tend to have what we call um, an honor-shame-oriented culture, where you don't see yourself as much as an individual as we do here in America, but you see yourself as part of a community. I am part of a family, and I am part of this neighborhood, and I'm part of the place where I work and, and my church, and everything is so related that way. And with that, this idea of honor and shame becomes really big. You act in a way, and you do everything in a way that would not bring shame not only to yourself, but to the ones around you. And for a son to do something that would maybe bring shame to that family, something that it's not just the son's responsibility, but the father is the one now responsible for the image of his own family if he's not dealing with that properly. And same thing to governments and, and to men who are in authority in any position. They feel responsible for making sure that if someone is not following the lines and is bringing shame to the whole country, that group has to be eliminated. And this is, of course, the culture Jesus lived in and still is today in the Middle East. So his, this son comes to his father and he asks I want to show to you here a very shameful request. He says, would you divide your inheritance and share that with me and, and let me take it? And the first problem here is that the, if anyone, the older son maybe would have the right to ask this because we know based on Old Testament law that because he was younger, two-thirds of the inheritance would go to the older son who have more of a right, but the younger son, he's the, the least in getting this inheritance. And he's saying, Father, I want my part of my share of the inheritance. And this is a terrible request because you don't receive your inheritance until your father is dead. So coming to your father and saying, Father, can I have my share of the inheritance now? Is pretty much saying, Father, would you die for me? That's what I want. I don't really care about your business. I don't really care about what you have, what you have done for me in the past. Can I just have my stuff, what I can get out of you so that I can be out of here? That's what the son is asking. And, of course, um, the, the shameful request would be expected to be responded as, you know, of course not. This doesn't make any sense. But there is also a surprising answer here that the Pharisees are probably um, trying to understand why would this father even allow, as he does, that this son would receive the inheritance. And he's not asking his dad in, in a polite way, saying, Father, I, I think I have some skills that I can use somewhere else. I, I could get this money and start a new business, new farm somewhere, and, and try to develop what you have. No, there's no interest in, in doing anything related to his family here. He just wants to, 
to get what he can get and, and get out of there. Verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. This very expression in the beginning of verse 13 is actually very helpful, and, and it's easy to, to leave that unnoticed. Not many days later, remember that whoever is buying these things that the younger son is selling, that person is not receiving these goods right away. I mean, the father still owns those things, and, and whoever is buying is buying with the hope that when the father dies, that person will eventually receive those goods. So it's not as valuable as if you had the thing to give right away. And it says not many days later. Um, many of you may be dealing with uh, real estate right now, and, and you understand about buying and selling. And how do you sell anything super fast? You sell it cheap. That's, that's the way to do it, especially back in the day when you didn't have OfferUp or Facebook to announce things. The best way to sell things is just sell it cheap, just liquidate the money, and then you can get going. Not many days later. What he's doing, he's, he has shown no respect and no value for anything that the Father has given him. He's just wasting all of that away. And he's taking all the money. He's going to a different country. A different country here means, of course, outside Israel. And the Pharisees knew very well that if you even travel for a business trip somewhere outside of Israel, when you come back, you make sure you're shaking all the dust out of your sandals and, and out of your shirt and everything because you don't want to bring any, any hidden dust from those pagans inside the country of the Holy Land. But that's where he's going. He wants to go to this far country and... That's where he squanders. That's from where we got the word prodigal here. The word prodigal from prodigal son, the one who squanders, the one who wastes everything, spends everything. And he does all that in this far country. We don't know exactly the, the, what he did. We know one thing was involved, and that was prostitution, because in verse 30, at the very end of this parable, the, the older son says, you know, your younger son who went and spent all these things with prostitutes. So we know that, that was involved out of all the things we could imagine. So he's living in reckless living. And let me just pause right here before we move to the next verse and say that this is a great picture, a very vivid picture of what sin is in each one of our lives. Sin is a waste. Sin is, is not valuing the gifts of God. The Bible is very clear that everything that God created, he created good. And everything that you and I have received our whole lives are good and perfect gifts from God. And yet... Every time we sin, this is what we're doing. We're wasting the gift of God. We're giving what God has given us. We're getting what God has given us to honor him, to be thankful to him, to use for others, to love others, and to steward in in a wise manner, and we're wasting with our own pleasures. That's what sin is. Sin is ugly. Sin is nasty. And all of us here are guilty of acting this way to one extent or the other, getting a good gift and just using for our own pleasures. And that's what we see, of course, to an extreme here in the parable of the prodigal son. Jesus has many, many parables, and and many of them include a fool, the man who is making bad decisions. But this is definitely the most extreme of all the fools we see in the Bible. Uh, The Pharisees at this point, they're even trying to understand how could someone be this foolish? This is the worst 
of, of all sins. In verse 14, then, it says that when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. This right here, it's getting worse. The Pharisees at this point, they're getting goosebumps. This is not only the most foolish of all the sinners seen in the scriptures, but this is also the worst sinner in the worst state that he could find himself. Even the circumstances are against him now. There's a famine. He had just spent everything in his bagging. Uh, notice that the, the wording here says he hired himself out. It's not that someone came and hired him to pay him, but he's, ba- he's a beggar. He doesn't have anything. And the only solution is, can I, can I do anything for you so that I can have some, eat, some, some food to eat tonight? And he hires himself out to one of the citizens of this country. And I don't mean to read too much into the text here, but you can maybe even get a little bit of the irony of, you know, this, this guy is there and there's this Jewish kid who is begging for something. And, oh, you're, you're a Jew, right? You guys like pigs, don't you? Why don't you go feed my pigs over there? Little Jewish boy. That would be fun, wouldn't it? Go over there and, and feed the pigs. And, of course, you know that the Jews hated pigs and dogs. Those are the two animals that they didn't like. And this man is now now with pigs, and he is actually worse than the pig. He wants to eat the pods of the pigs, and he can't. He can't even eat that. Jesus is painting the picture of the worst possible sinner in the worst possible scenario, which is a very important thing. As we continue studying this parable, I wanted to see that if this is the worst possible sinner, in the worst possible scenario, that tells you something about yourself and about your place in finding repentance and your place in finding redemption with this God, who, uh, this Father who is going to deal with this Son as he's coming back. The, one, of, one of the things we, we hear so much today in our country is the idea of freedom. It's all about freedom and respecting one another and, 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 and letting people do whatever desires come to their minds and, and, and live that way. But the Bible says that actually the freedom of the will when it comes to a sinner, this is the end of it. One who just goes and spends everything and does everything in a lawless way and just trying to seek their pleasure, this is the end of sin. The wages of sin is death. And that's what we see with the experience of this man who is doing everything that he can unrestrictedly and, and without anything holding him back. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, this is the first part where we start seeing uh, uh, repentance here. When he came to himself, when he came to his senses, this man now, for the first time, he has a true assessment of his condition. And, and that's what repentance is. It's, it's understanding where you truly are uh, in, in your state. And he has a true assessment of, of his condition. He realizes, where am I doing my life? Where, what am I doing right now? Where, why am I still here? He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? 
but I perish here with hunger. This expression, hired servants, there are several words in the New Testament for servants, different kinds of servants. This one that we find here is the same type of servant that we see in the parable of the laborers. Uh, there's this parable where Jesus, um, where the, the master comes and, and he hires someone at, in the morning, in the very beginning of the morning, 6 or 9 a.m., and, and he says, I'll pay you this much at the end of the day. They start working, and then three hours later, he asks for the second group and, and at noon, and then at the end of the day, and then an hour even before the day was over, he says, okay, um, if, you, if you work to the rest of the day, I'll pay you this much. And that kind of servant is the, kind of, is the word that we see here. The servant who was paid for daily wages. And the Old Testament made it very clear that this kind of laborer had to be paid every single day. You cannot wait longer. You cannot wait to pay at the end of the week because those people are so poor that they needed that very that salary for that very day to be able to eat. And, and they had to be paid daily. And, of course, the father, who was very rich, very wealthy, we, we know that because of all the things described in this parable that he had, he had many of these servants, and he's saying, my father treated those men so well. They never lacked any bread. What he's assessing here, if he had a true assessment of himself by realizing that he's eating with pigs and can barely eat their food, now he's realizing, what am I doing here? My father treats everyone so well. My father is generous. My, fi- my father is, is sympathetic with the people in his life. My father shows compassion for the poor. My father is good. That's what he's realizing. And that, those are the two elements of repentance, right? Repentance is to realize your condition as a sinner, but also to realize the goodness of God, the character of God. And the contrast between the two, understanding who you are and who God is, and, and coming before him in repentance, Those are the two elements, and we see that here with the prodigal son. He understands his condition. He understands now who his father is, maybe for the first time. My father is good. He couldn't see that before. Maybe he would see his father before as one who could give him the stuff, and and he could get some money out of it, but now there's something about my father that I just want to be with him. I need to be back. That's the character of God. Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin. That's the God we serve. That's the God we love. Um, And and that's the understanding that brings someone to repentance. Uh, Milton, in his work, Paradise Lost says, and I, I believe that this is a very appropriate description of repentance here for, as we consider the parable of the prodigal son. Milton says, we lost paradise when we turned away from God and each person turned to his own way. So today, when we call people to repentance, it is appropriate to think of it in terms of going home, back to where we were originally in the presence of God, in fellowship with God, and in submission to God. The call to repentance is a call to return, a call to go back home. And I really appreciate this quote from Milton, this idea of repentance is going back home. It's going back to what we designed from the very beginning. When God created Adam and Eve in the garden, he created them to enjoy him and to enjoy the world and to live a joyful life that way. And we went away from that, but God is calling us to repentance, to go back home and to find a refuge 
in him and with his family. Verse 18, so he says, I will rise and go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So these are his expectations. And let's stop here for a minute and then remember that the whole point of this parable is to the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees are the ones who could not understand what, how a God, how Jesus could relate to sinners the way uh, they, they were observing. And now this man is coming home, and the Pharisees, of course, they, they don't understand this idea of compassion. They, they think that this man is absolutely shameful for all that he did. And if anything, they're expecting that as the son comes back, they're thinking, what kind of punishment is this boy going to receive? What kind, of, what kind of thing would you do to a child who is this shameful to his father and who is this disregardful towards the honor of his family? And they're waiting for the response of the father. Okay, he maybe has to work maybe 10 years to pay for all this debt that he caused. Maybe he'll be humiliated in front of the whole town and, and then be able to come back home. Or maybe he won't even receive at all. We can't even imagine. I mean, this is just such a shameful situation. And the Pharisees are, of course, projecting all these things as the son's coming home. And now we get to then the second character of this parable, which is the father, in verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. This man now, this young man, is coming back, and he's stinking like pigs, and he's dirty, and he's hungry, near death. He, he's dirty of all his promiscuity and, and everything that he has done. And, of course, the expectation here, the Pharisees, is what's going to happen to this man who has brought so much shame to our people? But when he was a long way off, his father saw him. And, and notice here that, that this is the idea of repentance, of, of God saving. No man seeks after God, Romans 3. God is the seeker. In the same way that the sheep doesn't come after the shepherd. The shepherd is the one rescuing. The coin doesn't find the woman. The woman is the one going after and finding. Now the father is the one looking, and he saw him from afar. So he comes, and he saw, sees him. And he felt compassion over the son. The son is in a miserable condition. And this very word compassion, not in Greek here, but the word in Hebrew for compassion comes from the very root of the word womb, a woman's womb. So to feel compassion is to feel the pain of someone else. To, to feel compassion is to put yourself in the place of that person and, and, and feel in your own self, in your own body, the pain that that person is feeling, the shame. And, and this is what the father is doing. He looks at his son, and he pities his son, and he can feel in his own soul everything that's going on in the heart of his son. And he runs and embraces him and kisses him and does all these things. And, and where is the recon- what is the work of reconciliation here? What's going on? He felt compassion for his son. He embraced him. That's full reconciliation. It's in, notice that it's immediate. He's not saying you have to do a certain things, but he just says right away. And then in verse 21, he says, um, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. 
and let us eat and celebrate for this son, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. It's what we see here. I see that Dennis is here today. So I'll mention this is the doctrine of the imputation of Christ's righteousness upon this man. It's immediate. There is no work involved. It's absolutely by grace. This father shows compassion. He sees the broken, contrite heart of his son. And as David describes in Psalm 51, a broken, contrite heart, oh God, do you not despise. He feels the pain. He shows compassion. You see this, this double exchange, this uh, double imputation, if you will, where now notice that the shame of the son, if, for the Pharisees who are judging the situation, is being shifted from the son to the father. This father is now the one who is shameful. What kind of father who cares for his goods and cares for his uh, people would allow such man to come back without due retribution for his sins? But he embraces him, full reconciliation. He's accepting the son back. And he is now the one acting in a way that maybe wouldn't be expected by the Pharisees. And on the other hand, he's giving all these things to the son. My best robe and and the ring. What is the ring? The ring is the very authority of the father. Uh, The ring is what you use to sign and close deals. And all of that he's passing to his son, shoes on his feet. He's not a servant, he's a son. All these things are taking place. And this is happening to the worst sinner ever described by Jesus. The worst sinner in the worst possible scenario who comes with a broken, contrite heart before the Father. And this is what we see, lavished in grace by the Father. And it's a party now, and they want to celebrate. And the party's on, but someone is not there. There's one person who is not in this party. He's not celebrating. And that's what we see in verse 25. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed you a command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the, the main part of the story. This is what Jesus is getting at, going back to the beginning of chapter 15. The Pharisees and scribes were grumbling and complaining. They were angry that Jesus was eating with sinners, sitting with them. And now we have this son here who says to be angry and refuse to go in the party because he would not accept this party for the younger son. 
But notice that, first of all, the son, the older son, if, in the same manner that the first one, the younger one, didn't really have a relationship with the father in the beginning. He was just there to get what he could. It seems like the older son it was in the same position. He was not really in the house. He was in the field. And when he sees all the party going on and the music and the dancing, he doesn't come to his father, but he comes to the servant. What is going on there? It doesn't seem like he has a really good relationship with his father. And, of course, we're thrown back to verse 2, to the Pharisees, when it says that he becomes angry and he can't accept what is going on. And, of course, the Pharisees, they're listening to this whole story. They're even thinking themselves, this is obvious. I mean, why would you go to that party? This is a shameful party. There's no place for us in here. This doesn't make any sense. But in the same way that the father shows mercy to the younger son and runs after the first son when he comes back, now the same father is the one who is entreating with the older son, saying, um, coming out of the party, he's leaving his party, and he's coming down to the second son, the same way that he did for the first one, and he's reasoning with him, son, join the party. I don't want you out here. You're my son, and I want you in the party. The same Christ who was teaching to the sinners is the one who's teaching to the hypocrites. There are two kinds of sinners. There, there are sinners who are outside, completely outside, and, and they're sinning recklessly. But then there are, of course, the ones among us who are just hypocrites. We just think that we're being saved because we're obeying, because we're in the church, and because we're following these rules. But there's no relationship with the Father. And notice that what is keeping this older son from the party is his obedience. It's his goodness. It's his righteousness. He says, I'm not going to go to this party with this sinner. I'm not going there. I have never disobeyed you a command. And you have never given me anything. It's his goodness that's keeping him away from the party. So what happens? Because the story ends here. This is where the story ends, and we don't know exactly what happened. The, the father comes out, and he entreats with the older son, and that's the end of the story. So to finish this, I actually want to do something that uh, John MacArthur actually wrote a really good book on this parable and was one of my main sources as I was studying for this. And I want to share something very interesting he does at the very end of his book. He writes two possible endings to this story. And even though it's, it's coming from Joe MacArthur, as you see, it's not just from the top of his head, but he's doing this based now of what we know related to, to Jesus, what we know about what happened to Jesus himself to the end of the story of the Gospels. So here's the first ending of the story. Then the elder son fell on his knees before the father, saying, I repent for my bitter, loveless heart, for my hypocritical service, and for my pride and self-righteousness. Forgive me, Father, make me a true son, and take me inside to the feast. The father then embraced his firstborn son, took him inside, and seated him alongside his brother in dual seats of honor. They all rejoiced together, and the level of joy that was already amazing in the celebration suddenly doubled. That's the first ending. 
is repentance to this Pharisee. And of course, we have one example in the Bible of that kind of man. We have uh, Nicodemus, who, who was a Pharisee, and he believed in Christ and followed Christ. But of course, um, if we look at this parable in the lenses of the rest of what we see in the Gospels, we know that this is not the right ending of the story. Of course, you have exceptions like um, Nicodemus. But when you think of the attitude that the Pharisees and the scribes had toward Jesus, to the end of Jesus' life, here's the real ending of the story. After hearing his father's words, the elder's son was outraged at his father. He picked up a piece of wood and beat his father to death. That's the real ending of the story. That's what the Pharisees did to Jesus, and they even said, let his blood be on us, because he was shameful. His healing was through the devil. That's what they accused him. You do these miracles through Beelzebub. You're shameful. You relate to sinners. You came, and you're not here to encourage us in our traditions and in how holy we are in following our law. We don't. You're not one of us. And they rejected the Son of God. They rejected the part. They rejected what was the very joy of God in rescuing sinners for the sake of their traditions and for the sake of their own pride and self-righteousness. And the beauty here is that everything ends at the cross. Hebrews 12, chapter 2, is maybe the best verse to summarize the end of this story. Jesus, for the joy... Think of the joy of heaven. What is the joy of God? Salvation of sinners. For the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. He took our shame. If you are here this morning, and if you're saved, and you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you see yourself as one who has wasted the good gifts of the Father. But you have come to repent, and you have realized that the Father is good. And it doesn't matter where you are in your level of, of, of sinfulness. It doesn't matter how you sin. If you're in between the, the younger son and the older son, there is repentance. And the Father is entreating you this morning to come to repentance, to come to him and join the party. Because Christ has took on himself our shame. He has taken the shame of your sin upon him on the cross so that you could join the party and you could enjoy the joy of God with the angels, with all the saints in heaven for all eternity. That's the gift of grace, the gift of God to those who come to repentance by understanding their state, your sinful nature, to understand who God is, his goodness, and to come to him through faith. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your son, Lord, we can do nothing apart from him. We thank you that through him we are who we are, and through him we have your spirit who brings us joy, peace, love, kindness, self-control, and all the fruit of righteousness born, uh, that you bear in our hearts. Lord, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your word, and we pray that you apply these truths to our hearts so that we would not only learn how to love you, but also how to love your neighbor as we continue spreading the good news of the gospel to all those who find themselves hopeless in the sinful world. And we pray that you would give us the courage and the wisdom in knowing how to do all these things for the glory and for the sake of your Son. And we pray in his strong name. Amen.